Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your Calls One Planet series. The oceans cover 70% of the Earth's surface, but almost two-thirds make up loosely regulated international waters, or the high seas. These vast bodies of water are some of the most valuable and exploited areas on Earth. The high seas also act as a major carbon sink. They generate around half of the oxygen we all breathe. They provide food to more than 3 billion people and contribute to the livelihoods of more than 600 million. According to The Guardian, currently all countries can navigate, fish, or overfish and carry out scientific research on the high seas practically at will. Only 1.2% of it is protected, and the increasing reach of fishing and shipping vessels, the threat of deep-sea mining, and new activities such as bioprospecting of marine species mean they're being threatened like never before. After many years of disagreements, and most recently, two weeks of negotiations, on March 4th, Rena Lee, the president of the Intergovernmental Conference on Marine Biodiversity of Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction, delivered the landmark news that 190 countries had agreed on the UN legally binding High Seas Treaty to protect biodiversity. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called the treaty a victory for multilateralism and crucial for addressing the triple planetary crisis of climate change, biodiversity loss, and pollution. So given the dire state of our oceans, what will this treaty do? It still has to be ratified by 60 nations. So how long will it take until we see the impacts? Joining us are two guests. David Helvarg is executive director of Blue Frontier, an ocean conservation and policy group that aims to build the solution-oriented citizen engagement needed to protect our oceans, coasts, and communities. David Helvarg is host and producer of the Rising Tide Ocean podcast and author of six books, including Blue Frontier, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean and the Golden Shore. Hi, David. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me back, Rose. Great to have you. We're also joined by Jeremy Ragon, an environmental campaigner from the Seychelles Islands in the Western Indian Ocean and a fellow at the Alliance of Small Island States, an intergovernmental organization of low-lying coastal and small island countries. Jeremy Ragon joins us from the Island Republic of the Seychelles. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Jeremy. I, I want to start off with you, Jeremy, because you were actually at this conference. And when the news came down, it was welcomed by so many people. Of course, it got so much international attention because of what the ocean is dealing with. Climate change, overfishing, plastic pollution, oil and gas. The list is so long. So first off, tell us about your experience at the conference and, and what was accomplished. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a thing, and I'm really grateful for the fellowship that I took part in um, over the course of last year because I was able to attend IGC3 March last year and IGC4. I really understood how we didn't come to an agreement in the previous attempts and how we, um, after 35 hours with most of us on one hour sleep because we couldn't figure out one of the components and one of the most controversial components being marine genetic resources, um, to be part of that whole experience and to at least get a glimpse into that 21-year process that led to this moment has been incredible as a 28-year-old. Um, mm. I've also taken part in, in climate negotiations. So the tensions are there, and it's quite interesting. So for Seychelles, we were five delegates um, to this conference, um, and that's the largest we've ever been as a small island developing state or big ocean state, so 99% of our territory is ocean. And we border the high seas a lot. Um, what's interesting is, you know, this, this biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction treaty is really the first one thinking about conservation and sustainable use at its core. But we know it cannot necessarily touch things like fishing. It cannot necessarily touch things like deep sea bed mining. I mean, that's still things that have been, um, I wouldn't say managed well, but things that find themselves under the competencies of the international seabed authority or the regional 
fishery management organizations that fall underneath the food and agriculture organization. So as you said, and I think really well, is that there's been a, a lack of governance out there and there's a mismatch or, you know, bricolage of, uh, of some kind of regimes out there. But how much is actually going out then thinking about the conservation and sustainable use? And, and just one point, just to disagree, maybe it's a little bit of the Guardian article. Although Seychelles is this big ocean state, and although we may be able to license out our flag to vessels, many states can't actually get out there. So that's mm -hmm. one thing Seychelles is trying to understand. And a big component of this is, you know, how do we allow the global south especially? Because I believe it's maybe 15, 20 states that are really able to uh, benefit from this high seas in a particular way and also able to damage these high seas in a particular way. But when you think about plastic pollution and much more, there's a lot to be discussed. So I'll leave it at that for now, but it's an incredible first step. It's a silver bullet. Uh, it's not a silver bullet, sorry. It's a it's a raft uh, and it's a first step for the world moving forward. And I I'm glad it's a, a frank conversation happening. You make a, such a good point because, right, not all countries actually overfish. Not all countries are producing the same amount of plastic pollution out there. It's, a, it's such an important point. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it, a, it's, it's a case of inequalities and, and information. Yeah, right. And Jeremy, given that you were there and you know, can you just tell us what goes on behind the scenes? Because I remember I was watching this pretty closely and the negotiations almost broke down. You tweeted that you know, how do you waste time and condescend, lie and play every short-sighted tactic while being the biggest destroyers of our ocean? You write that the way these negotiations have gone shows how much the global north is out of touch and greedy, not ready to be real partners for the crisis we face. So can you just tell us about how this almost broke down and then what happened at that point? Yeah, that's, thank you for that question. Because as I see it, again, the third time I've taken part in a process that's been end and People you know, usually say these, these agreements, that these negotiations fail if there's no agreement. And I ask people, would you take a bad contract? Would you take a contract that is weak, that allows people to jump out and you know, out of what has been agreed? If there's a may instead of a shall, if it's as appropriate or relevant, you know, these weaken um, how much you know, the regulations or the things we're agreeing upon actually legally bind our countries. And obviously we know countries our powers upon themselves. But if I can give you that snapshot in the last two days, on Thursday, we were going into marine genetic resources uh, up until Friday morning at 3 a.m. And really, there was no way to go forward. And, you know, I think the Convention on Biological Diversity, COP15, that took place and the post-2020 biodiversity framework really made a lot of strides uh, and advancements on how genetic resources within national jurisdictions um, are being thought about and how the benefits are being thought about and really has been part of the Seychelles delegation, but also the Africa group and the Alliance of Small States, which make which are part and parcel of the G77, you know, 134 countries and China um, being part of such a group that represents, you know, easily 80 plus percent of the world's population. You could see that the benefits of these marine genetic resources were not wanting to be shared. And so, you know, if we break down the treaty into five components, there's what we call the area-based management tools, which include marine protected areas. There's the environmental impact assessments, right? How would we mitigate activities going on there, the impact, or would we stop these activities from happening? There's things like the capacity building and transfer of marine technology and these marine genetic resources. And when you look at the countries out there, and again, these are closed sessions, so I can never name countries, but you can see the most powerful countries are looking out for their economic interests and, and security interests in many cases. And yeah, so we went into that 35 hour, no sleep, uh, no sunlight, at least for many of us who did not have hotels nearby the UN, who could not go and have a shower, could not um, take a two minute nap because other delegations are much larger. Um, we, 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 we rode through that. And I have to admit, I got emotional when I saw uh, my elders being talked to a certain way when I saw the tactics that were being used to really whittle people down. And I think what I've seen in the UNFCCC process as well has been tactics that uh, really tire people in and give give it, give it people uh, very little to choose, you know, in terms of how to get out of these. But what I was really proud to see was we have, you know, a, an amazing person that I'm, I'm very proud to be a Seisho with is Ishina Tama, who's 
uh, deep sea scientist who's actually been to the open ocean beyond, beyond national uh, beyond national jurisdiction and, and done science then. She was able to advise the Africa group and we had lawyers and people with such skills. So even in the face of great odds, I saw people putting up a fight and that's why it went on for so long. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be easy to just say yes to everything, but um, from the, the bias possibly perspective I was from, looking from, uh, you know, a lot of people were trying to get them more equitable, get them more implementable because all of what we're talking about benefits uh, whether being monetary or non-monetary would either go back to the treaty or the ability to implement the treaty. Well, and... The, oh, David, go ahead. No, the nice thing is is this high seas treaty really meets the bottom line, the triple bottom line of, of balancing environment, economy, and equity. I mean that the G77 and the small island nations... Um, held out for, for an equitable system. At the same time, saltwater is great for eroding, um, uh, you know, divisions where you saw the U.S. and China um, coming to agreement around this. And again, you saw uh, the U.S. delegation led by Monica Medina, our Undersecretary of State for Oceans, uh, Science and the Environment, being a, a long time, somebody I've known 20 years, committed to environmental conservation in the marine environment. And and so, uh, yeah, I think it's unfortunate that good ideas often take 20 years to accomplish and bad ideas get permitted immediately. But uh, in, in this case, this is the first real global treaty on the oceans since 1982, since the Law of the Seas. And that was really about navigation and science. and And yet... When that happened, within a year, uh, Ronald Reagan declared a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone around the United States and, and the world's coastal nations uh, claimed one third of the oceans as their economic spheres. And that changed everything. And I think that the possibility of, of this agreement and its focus on biodiversity and its focus on um, the state of our oceans, which is a state of collapse, is is even more hopeful and the potential not only to create massive marine protected areas, but to begin to look at uh, the whole net of life around us and realizing that uh, it's the only way we'll bounce back is protecting that that net of biodiversity that is, uh, as, as you said earlier, 70 percent of our environment is salt water. And uh, this is a treaty that's literally um, about protecting half of the planet. David, can you tell us in practice how this would work? I mean, we'll talk about ratification in a minute, uh, but what would this do actually? Jeffrey Marlowe, a marine scientist, w attended the talks. He wrote about this in The New Yorker. He says it's going to establish a roadmap for designating marine protected areas, which some call national parks of the sea. So if we can just stick with that for a minute, the problem is a lot of these marine protected areas are paper parks because they don't have any funding and there's not much enforcement. So how will MPAs change as a result of this treaty? Well, you're right. It's all about um, the legal mechanisms and then enforcing them. I mean, one of the world's largest, um, Papahanaumokuakea, Northwest Hawaii, is well protected because we have a U.S. Coast Guard and it's out there and it's patrolling. And so we're going to have to have the international mechanisms um, in place to allow for the observation and protection of, and the proper designation, of course. I mean, the open ocean is is uh, great wildlife migratory uh, areas for uh, for whales and tuna and salmon, and and so we have to not just randomly take, you know, thirty percent as a number, but really look at where where the high seas are most productive. I mean, the most productive areas are coastal systems or corals and our kelp forest and within the EEZs of various coastal states. The high seas, though, <clears throat> essentially is the outlaw seas today. I mean, this is where a lot of um, illegal and undocumented fishing is taking place. This is where people are now pushing for deep sea mining that has, you know, that they could open the last largest, largely unimpacted habitat on earth to industrialization. Um, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of people working from a lot of countries to identify the most productive parts of the high seas 
And we now have the technologies to do the enforcement if we choose to. I mean, if you see an illegal boat, you no longer have to chase it with a patrol boat. You can see it by uh, remote sensing and, and require all vessels to have uh, AIS, or automated information systems. And if they turn them off, that that draws attention. And then you have port agreements. If if somebody comes into port with a legal shark court in a marine protected area, um, there are people waiting on the dock and that ship can be seized. We, we know what the mechanisms are. It, it's getting the commitment to do the enforcement that we have the capacity to uh, to do and to establish uh, what the world's committed to, which is protection of 30 percent of uh, of our lands and our oceans by 2030. And, uh, you know, Wilson said half by, you know, he proposed we need to protect half the world and the other half we need to live in a lot more sustainably. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, what would you add when we're talking about marine protected areas? How would that affect small island states like the Seychelles, like other island states in the global south? Yeah, I mean, it's it's agreeing a lot with what David's put out there, because I think we're looking at 30 to 50 percent. And somewhere like Seychelles, you know, is a country that is protecting 50% of its terrestrial area, which is a very small amount. Uh, I think we're about four, about 470 kilometers square. And we've got about 50% designated as protected with quite a heavy amount of enforcement, especially with two UNESCO World Heritage Sites. But then when you have 99% of our ocean, which uh, our territory is ocean, which is basically the size of South Africa, about 1.3 million square kilometers, I think about 700,000 miles. And we're protecting 32% of that as no take, very strict conservation, uh, and the other parts, 15, uh, 15%, 17% of sustainable use with tourism activities and other activities taking place. And we've done something of a debt for nature swap that's allowed that to take place. But we know um, it will take a lot more. I, I estimate it will take something like between 5 and 10% of our national budget to protect, uh, to really go out and make sure that in, uh, illegal, unregulated, underreported fishing isn't taking place, poaching is not taking place. So we as Seychelles, we understand the limitations because even in our own waters, it's the, the distances are so huge um, and enforcement and, and surveillance, all these things are real challenges to us. So when we think about the high seas, a lot of what we needed to fight for and show for big ocean states or small island developing states, I mean, they have them in the Pacific, um, a lot in the Indian Ocean, like the Maldives and Mauritius and our neighbors. Um, you can see that if a marine protected area is created on your border, it could be good for you. It could be very good for you in terms of ensuring that, um, you know, the kind of species that might be open uh, for, for use, in t- allowing for regeneration. It, it's obviously great for other reasons, some sequestration for carbon. But then it might put an undue pressure on your limited resources to go out there and enforce it because you're nearby to it. So we've asked throughout the treaty, and especially in uh, Article 5, to ensure that the special circumstances SID, with SIDS with these developed countries understood so that the cap- capabilities, uh, the capacity building, the transfer of marine technology, um, but also other things such as finance, such as these things are understood because we cannot take on too much burdens. We have a lot on our on our shoulders already and we need the help to, to make these things happen. Um, and, you know, again, we're so dependent and ecologically con- connected to the ocean. So it's great if we can have these things go out there, but... It's going to take a lot of willpower. It's going to take a lot of time. I mean, we need to see a lot of things start moving. And I think the really good point that is is science. You know, if we can go out there and do the baseline studies, as David said, if we can just be very selective. I mean, for instance, there's uh, the, there's an area shared between Mauritius and Seychelles, um, and it, it hosts the world's largest seagrass meadow, about the size of Switzerland, if you can imagine it. And just imagine this, the carbon sequestration taking place there. So let's say a, a marine protected area is created there. That would be amazing for the world. But how would Mauritius and Seychelles be aided in, in protecting that area? You know, these are the kind of questions we have to ask ourselves. And, and again, it's in the context is we're in crisis. The ocean's in yeah. crisis, the atmosphere. I mean, the UN, which is a conservative estimate, says 80% of the global marine wildlife that's edible uh, fisheries are fish to maximum overfish in our state of collapse, at least 10% of our marine wildlife, including, you know, sharks, whales, everything down to, to abalones 
are now in danger of, you know, threatened with extinction. So we have this global industrial overfishing. We have oil, chemical, nutrient, and plastic pollution. We have the loss of our coastal habitats to uh, poorly planned development. And on top of all that, um, the ocean impacts of climate change, which are are massive, you know, and a, a, a hotter, more acidic ocean also holds less dissolved oxygen. We're seeing collapse of uh, of algae, the the base of our food web on the planet, and and so uh, you know this is an important moment and an important treaty, but it's it's late in the game. I mean, I think that. You know, it's not a question anymore of are we optimistic or pessimistic. We're we're in a phase of triage. We're going to save what we can while we can, um, and that not only applies at the global level. We're seeing it, um, and and we're working on it nationally and at the state level, at the local level. Um, hopeful signs, but all coming very late in the process. Right. I mean. When you think about plastic pollution alone, a new study came out that found more than 170 trillion plastic particles weighing 2 million metric tons are afloat in the world's oceans. Uh, This is according to peer-reviewed research published in the Plus One Journal. Jeremy, we watched a couple of videos of you and your colleagues and people who care about the ocean in the Seychelles doing, you know, plastic cleanups. So does this treaty at all impact plastic pollution, given that this is such a worldwide crisis? That's a great question. I mean, so when we did the Aldabrakina project, which basically removed 25 metric tons uh, from a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So this is meant to be, you know, the, the, one of the most preserved places. It'd be like one of my friends, Dr. April Bird said, it's like walking into uh, the Louvre or some great museum and seeing someone have, has trashed it, burnt it. I don't know what. And that's coming from elsewhere, um, not coming from the Seychelles, coming largely from industrial fishing, fishing uh, fleets, right? Uh, seeking tuna such as skipjack and yellowfin in the Indian Ocean case. So fish aggregating devices, all these huge things. And you ask yourself, this is this is uh, landing up on our islands. It's not us who's responsible for these things. Um, it's killing our turtles, killing our seabirds, you know, affecting the ecosystem certain way. But as I understand it, again, this goes uh, before or just as I was being born. So maybe David will have more of a recollection of this. But as I understand it, in terms of the compromises for us to get to this treaty, things like fishing and the RFMOs, so, and it played out throughout these negotiations, that if they have certain competencies, if they're meant to be looking after the fishing um, taking place in the high seas, this treaty should not exactly um, go over their heads. And there's a lot a lot, a lot of sovereignty, a lot, a lot of wealth, a lot of um, safeguarding by states and by uh, other bodies that fall underneath the the, the fish, um, the food agriculture organization. So it's hard to say that this treaty will directly um, impact these these organizations and, and regimes that exist out there. But I would say it's quite interesting because the science and attention that's going to be generated by this treaty, if it is implemented as it should, will give us a better understanding of what's going out there because the people, the organizations, corporations, governments that are operating out there, we're just beginning to survey them and not very well, but this treaty will give us greater attention and resources out there to see things. So I think that's very important to realize this is a first step. And I think if we're protecting areas, we have to say, okay, fish, fishing is not allowed in that thing, you know, um, and how these areas are selected will also be quite a political game because certain areas um, will be uh, great grounds for fishes. I mean, we know if climate change, tuna migration, for instance, but also other biodiversity is going to be affected. So it'll be very interesting. I mean, I know there's some proposals to have marine par- protected areas that move with certain species or encourage you know, the conservation in movement, you know. So we have to be really innovative with these thinkings to try and think about how we have infinity fish, right? It makes sense actually not to have a scorched earth principle, uh, a policy, um, and this this treaty might open up the doors in terms of tools for these things. But we have to understand that there's organizations and regimes that have been there since UNCLOS, you know, in terms of implementing agreements such as the fish stocks agreement or the ports uh, agreement. So we have to remember that this thing comes in as part of a, a, a greater system and hopefully it holds its own as we put attention and, and, and energy into it. This This treaty is like... In the United States, when we passed the Clean Air and the Clean Water Acts and established the EPA, 
didn't end pollution, but it created new a new base of power, a, a new center of power of which we can work for uh, these things. I mean, you you talk about issues we have to deal with, like plastic pollution. For people who don't uh, connect their lives with the ocean, and again, you have to remember there's 8 billion of us, and on any given day, there are only about 40 million of us on the 71% of the planet that's that's ocean. But, you know, you can make other connections. I mean, the vinyl chloride, the carcinogen that exploded and burned after the rail disaster in uh, East Palestine, Ohio, it was all vinyl chloride, which is all used in the making of PVC plastic piping. Um, You know, you go to places like Port Arthur, Texas, and you see these massive expansion of petrochemical plants for production of plastic because the oil industry sees that it's no longer going to be producing fuel that the global auto fleet's going to transition to uh, electric. So they're doubling down on plastic. They want the world, you know, to have a future that looks like Legoland. And, uh, you know, for all the Republicans who uh, have been saying East Palestine is, you know, their cause, uh, there's a break free from plastic pollution bill in Congress and not one Republican co-sponsor for it. So, all these issues come back to what's what's our political vision for the future? Is it sustainable? Is it based on recognition that we're all interdependent in this web of life? Or is it, you know, take what you can while you can get it? Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And Jeremy, we want to thank you for joining us. We'd love to have you back. And maybe we can have on some of the people that you work with, other activists from other island states, because it's just so important to hear about what's happening in your part of the world. So thank you for your work. And thank you for joining us. Thank you so so much for having me. And definitely more voices that we can bring to the table, the better. And yeah, I really appreciated a frank discussion about this because Sometimes it's too simplified, but what I found today is, yeah, you're really bringing it out. So I really appreciate this chance. And in regards to your ex-president, who's long been a global leader on the ocean climate connection. I will pass that on. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Jeremy Ragan is a Seychellois conservationist. He is an alumni of the Alliance of Small Island States Fellowship, serving also as the Seychelles' mission to the UN's climate change and ocean advisor through 2022. Jeremy and his colleagues are doing incredible work in the Seychelles around plastic pollution and all of the issues that we discussed today. David Helvarg will be with us for the rest of the hour. David is executive director of Blue Frontier, host and producer of the Rising Tide Ocean podcast, and the author of six important books. You can find more information at yourcallradio.org. Today, we are talking about the recently agreed upon high seas treaty, what this would actually look like in practice. After a break, we'll talk about what it means that it has to be ratified uh, by 60 countries, including the United States. We'll also talk about what this will mean for deep sea mining. This is Your Calls One Planet series. We'll be back after this. This is Your Calls One Planet series. I'm Rose Aguilar. After many, many years of disagreements and most recently two weeks of negotiations, we got the news that a number of countries, about 190, agreed to the UN's legally binding high seas treaty to protect biodiversity. Now, this still needs to be ratified. So we're going to talk about that. And then we'll talk about what this would actually mean in practice. David Helvarg is executive director of Blue Frontier, host and producer of the Rising Tide Ocean podcast, and the author of six books, including 50 Ways to Save the Ocean. And now we would like to welcome Farah Yasmin Obedullah, who is ocean advocate, founder of Women for Oceans, and editor of the brand new book, The Ocean and Us. Hi, Farah. Congratulations on your book, and thank you for joining us again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's great to have you, Farah. I mean, the last time we had you on, we talked about deep sea mining, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But given that you love your love of the ocean. I just wonder what your thoughts are on the high seas treaty. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, it was mentioned in the previous segment, although I, I didn't catch all of it, but this treaty has been 20 years in the making, at least as long as I've been sort of in, involved in the political side of, of ocean governance. Um, it, you know, I've been busy 
with this, with making sure that we get some sort of protection for the high seas, which, as you know, make up almost half our planet. So to get to the point, and I was in New York uh, the last few weeks um, while the, these, this treaty was being negotiated, but to get to the point of actually agreeing to a treaty uh, was, I mean, was epic. I mean, it was, I, I, there are no words to describe how I and many others felt um, in the room about, uh, you know, about this result. And of course, there are many, uh, you know, deficiencies still in the treaty, many potential loopholes and uh, and a lot of work to be done before the treaty, you know, actually translates into action on the water and actually protects life in the ocean, which is what it's designed to do. But just getting to this milestone has been, um, yeah, just quite quite mind-blowing because it really does show in this kind of difficult time that governments uh, can still come together uh, for a collective uh, you know collective cause and 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 we need that right now <laughs> and, and what exactly will this do when it comes to deep sea mining you have been involved in many campaigns to stop deep sea mining and just for a little context the rising demand for electric cars and other clean technologies coupled with the depletion of minerals and metals on land is driving so much interest in mining the seafloor to extract things like cobalt nickel and lithium so what would this do to stop deep sea mining right well, so the treaty itself has no power as such to stop deep sea mining because as, as I think your your previous guest was explaining, um, or maybe not, sorry, I should, <laughs> I, I didn't listen to the whole segment, but basically the treaty, um, it's quite political, but it, 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 some of the provisions in there say that it should not undermine existing um, bodies such as regional fisheries management bodies or things like the International Seabed Authority, which is the body that would regulate deep sea mining. Um, so there is there is still work to be done to kind of har- kind of harmonize harmonize versus what is actually happening through the International Seabed Authority, um, uh, because yeah, they, this seabed authorities actually rushing to allow seabed mining to happen. Um, and so, and this treaty does not stop that. What this treaty does do is it, uh, it, it, it clearly spells out that environmental impact assessments need to happen. And because the International Seabed Authority hasn't yet started mining and they haven't yet develop, developed their own criteria for environmental impact assessments, they have to adhere to what this treaty is is spelling out. So there are ways in which we can use this treaty to stop the rush uh, for um, you know opening up the seabed to mining, but it, it doesn't in itself have the kind of authority to stop deep sea mining from going ahead. Of course, there's the political uh, goodwill that you know this treaty now has kind of has fostered and if those same governments go to the international seabed authority and rush mining through then then you know they're undermining the spirits of the treaty so it is a very useful tool for all of us in the convers- uh, conservation world to go back to the ISA and say hey you can't rush open the deep sea to mining. You have to adhe- adhere to these uh, to the principles set out in this treaty, and and you know it shouldn't be a case of waiting for the treaty to be ratified, which will take a few more years um, before you know uh, putting into practice those principles at the International Seabed Authority. Well, what D- you have David- now is well, I was going to say you, it, it's kind of like you're planning to build a coal-fired power plant or a petrochemical plant on the border of Yosemite or Yellowstone. I mean, we're creating vast national parks in the ocean, essentially, and we're using standards or we will be developing standards um, of respecting biodiversity um, that clearly aren't respected in plans for deep-sea mining, where there's sort of an incredible diversity of life in the deep ocean, which we don't fully understand, but which would be hugely impacted by these industrial operations. David, you recently wrote about this for the San Francisco Chronicle, and you pointed out that more than 650 ocean scientists and policymakers have signed a letter to the UN to hold off on licensing mining operations that could result in the loss of biodiversity and ecosystem functioning. France and New Zealand have called for a ban on deep sea mining. The United States supports a delay 
Uh, Monica Medina, the U.S. Undersecretary of State for Oceans, says deep sea mining is not ready for prime time. And then you've got a number of companies who have pledged to keep these minerals out of their electric cars, like Volkswagen, Volvo, BMW. So what are your thoughts, David, about what it would take to put something in this treaty that would not allow deep sea mining? I think the language that the treaties reached is pretty much the final language. Um, I don't think it's going to be amended to deal with the existing treaties around deep sea mining or fishing. Um, but I do think that, as I said, it's it's a, a new center of power that can actively um, push for a, a new approach to the ocean, which is instead of, you know, using it as a, uh, you know, for extraction and dumping, um, the new approach is going to be, oh, we're all dependent on a healthy ocean. And uh, I think, again, the, the conversation around this treaty um, is dramatic. I mean, when the Law of the Seas was passed in 82, the U.S. response was, well, we, we have to claim our, an exclusive economic zone to allow U.S. corporations to mine the deep seabed. That's what drove the Reagan administration. Forty years later, um, we have you know, an administration that's not only supportive of biodiversity, but actively saying that we have to hold back on deep sea mining because we don't understand it's it's uh, you know it's too risky. And Monica Medina, even our Undersecretary of State for Oceans, even used the analogy of plastic. You know, uh, problems don't stay in one place; they spread throughout the water column and uh, the you know the great. Uh, seas that make up our one unitary ocean. Farah, can you give us any other updates on deep sea mining? Well, I mean, um, you know, it's 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 also what we were talking about earlier. I mean, there are many companies that have uh, signed the letter sort of saying that they do not want to, to, to source minerals from the deep sea for their supply chains, more and more countries. So a big difference between the last time I came on your show and now is that we're seeing more and more states join the call for either a precautionary pause or a moratorium or even a ban. Um, and so there is this momentum that's building. Um, I was speaking with the energy sector a few months ago, and uh, and they are now also kind of, you know, becoming vocal on this issue and saying, well, we don't need these minerals or we shouldn't have to mine the deep sea for these minerals um, for for renewable energy technology. Um, so there are there is there is a move. Uh, you know, to, you know, a, re- a recognition that we, we shouldn't open these floodgates because, you know, once, once one country starts mining, then you, it, it'll be very difficult to stop other countries from coming in. Once the infrastructure is in place, um, then it will be, you know, the argument will be, well, there are too many jobs at stake and we have invested all this money. Uh, we see that now with the climate crisis and, and the fossil fuel industry. Uh, but this is something we know we, we know what the consequences will be. We know that they will be dire, very severe, will have irreversible uh, repercussions on life in the deep sea and therefore for us. Um, and so going into this industry really is a, a new form of ecocide. And that's also another movement that's been growing since I last came on the show. And that is this you know, movement to get ecocide recognized by the International Criminal Court as the fifth crime against um, uh, well, the fifth international crime alongside genocide and war crimes and, and, and the others. So there there is this movement. However, we have to, you know, time is running out. Um, we only have a few more months for the International Seabed Authority to, to declare or to put in place a moratorium because, yeah, as I said, once, once country starts, then there will be very little we can do to stop other countries from uh, going ahead as well. This is a really important point because as David points out in his piece, the UN's International Seabed Authority announced that at the request of the tiny Pacific island nation of Nauru, which has a contract with Metals Company, it will begin issuing licenses for deep sea mining next year. David, what's the status on that? Um, They're moving forward full bore. They want want to have uh, facts in place and go commercial. Um, my thinking is that, you know, we, we've seen this before. I mean, in the 1970s and 80s, commercial nuclear power was going to make energy so cheap that we wouldn't be able to uh, regulate or charge for it. Uh, the reality is that it turned out to be, you know, 
the most expensive form of boiling water and the most dangerous and commercial nuclear power didn't become a growth industry. I think we've already seen 450, uh, um, 450 tons pulled up in this first experimental dredging. Um, I think that we'll see the beginnings of deep sea mining and that the opposition to it will eventually close it down. It'll go the way of uh, commercial nukes uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, the investors aren't going to invest if there's no market. And those who say they don't want to buy this products from the deep ocean is expanding. And as uh, Farah said, um, nation states are joining the cause, including the United States, um, which is at least at this point very skeptical. Um, at the end of my piece, I quoted Jack Sully from uh, Avatar uh, at Way of the Water. He says, we're sea people now. This is our home. This is our fortress. This is where we make our stand. And I think more and more people um, through media, through direct experience, are beginning to understand how dependent we are on our coasts and oceans and uh, that we can't risk it. That just like uh, oil drilling is too high a risk to the uh, health and blue economy, that, that deep sea mining has too many uh, dangerous unknowns to be risking the lungs of the planet. And my friend... Uh, Randy Hayes coined the idea that the rainforest is the lungs of the planet, but it's it's really the ocean. It's uh, half of uh, all the oxygen we consume is from healthy oceans generating enough uh, oxygen to uh, to keep us functioning as a planet. David Helvard, yeah, I'd just like to add to. Sorry, go ahead, Farah. <laughs> No, I just wanted to add to that how important it is that we keep talking about these issues in the media, because without media attention, I'm pretty sure that governments that are now speaking out against deep sea mining wouldn't you know, have paid as much attention to what's going on in Kingston, Jamaica, where the International Seabed Authority sits, as they would have you know, uh, now because of all the media attention we're giving to it. So we, you know, we need to keep, even though the you know, there is, you know, there might not be a, a, a market, it might not be a viable uh, industry and so on and so forth, as David just described. It's still important that we keep talking about it to not give this industry any oxygen to continue developing any further. If, if only we had a morning talk show that reached a significant number of people in the world's fourth or fifth largest economy. Oh, wait. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask you both now um, about ratification and enforcement. So this still needs to be ratified. Uh, the Washington Post asked a number of U.S. senators what their plans are for this. A, a number of them said that they hadn't read it. They have no idea what the details are. Uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is cautiously optimistic. He says, I don't have a whip count, but we've seen a new appreciation of the danger for fisheries when international predators are at work in the high seas. But then you have Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, who says, I don't know we have the votes for it. Republicans are allergic to anything that mentions the United Nations. S so David... You, you need two-thirds of senators to ratify an international treaty. What are your thoughts on that? Um, that we don't have it right now, but that if you look at the law of the seas, the U.S. has never ratified the law of the seas. Uh, I, it goes back to when Jesse Helms was head of the Foreign Relations Committee. I was writing my first ocean book, uh, Blue Frontier, and I, I talked to his chief aide who said, well, the senator doesn't believe that we should sign any treaty where the U.S. doesn't have more votes than anybody else. So I think there's a strong opposition. But in the 40 years that we have not signed on to the law of the seas, uh, the U.S. Uh, military and uh, governance has all been aligned with the law of the seas and has participated. So it would be nice if the U.S. were one of the early signatories to the high seas treaty I think we have a commitment at the governmental level, at least at the administrative level, to abide by it and work with it. But I think we need uh, we need a more progressive Senate to uh, actually pass the international treaties that make us part of the global community. In the Washington well, also Post, the U.S. Oh, go ahead, Farah. No, I just want to say that the USA is one of the countries that was member of the High Ambition Coalition um, to to make sure that this that this treaty is as, as ambitious as possible. And I think that's a very good sort of starting point and also, you know, promising in terms of kind of going back to Washington and saying, all right, well, you were part of the high ambition coalition. Now, you know, we need to see this through into, into um, ratification and then implementation. Uh, 
The problem is we don't have time for years to wait for this. And so some advocates in the Washington Post said that if the United States does not ratify this immediately, uh, President Biden could use executive authority to designate new national marine sanctuaries. David, what are your thoughts on that? Um, President Biden can and and has designated uh, or at least, you know, supported marine protected areas. The U.S. is moving towards 30 percent protection for uh, marine environment. Of course, it's pretty easy since we established and expanded um, the uh, Northwest Hawaiian sanctuary. That's 70 percent of our coral reefs and lots of uh, unique creatures from tiger sharks to sea turtles to monk seals. But we need to bring uh, marine protected areas closer into shore. We need a San Francisco Hope Spark. We've got, you know, we can localize. We've got 100 acres of uh, healthy eelgrass, the most pristine eelgrass uh, right off Point Melody in Richmond. That needs to be protected. Uh, but President Biden can, well, he can do better than today when he authorized the willow oil drilling in the Arctic. Um, he can do a lot of marine protected areas within the U.S. exclusive economic zone. But in terms of this treaty, um, the Senate has to ratify and right now, the uh, you know, we have a two parties and one of them seems to be embedded with the oil and gas industry and only sees the uh, the oceans as a place for drilling and dumping. And we have to get beyond that politically. Well, and also just to be clear, so Biden is putting the Arctic waters off limits to new oil leases and the Willow project is in Alaska. And uh, Dallas Goldtooth with the Indigenous Environmental Movement said, if Joe Biden thinks peddling Arctic protections while also approving the Willow Project climate bomb is going to be okay, he's gravely mistaken. The amount of CO2 emissions, let alone indigenous rights violations, cannot be ignored or offset. And and we'll definitely do a show about that soon. Farah, what are your thoughts about ratification, ratifying this treaty? What are you hearing from other countries who need to ratify this? Right. Well, I mean, it is early days yet. It's just been over a week. Um, we need 60 countries uh, to ratify this treaty. Um, and so there's some sort of uh, hope, at least, or at least a will to kind of to get this treaty ratified at the UN Ocean Conference in 2025. Um, other treaties have been ratified in, you know, in under two years. So it, it is it is doable, but it will require political will uh, at the national level as well for, you know, for for. As, as you said, in the U.S., but also in other countries for parliaments to 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 decide on this. I, I've i just come back from meeting with the Dutch parliament in the Netherlands, um, you know, talking about this as well. And it's it is early days to to know exactly what's um, what's going to happen and what other international events might happen that, you know, uh, get us uh, off course <laughs> to meeting this this ratification. But um, the the important thing is, is that countries, they stay true to what they have agreed to last week. And they swiftly ratify this treaty and then move on to implementation. So we, we still are quite a few years out of seeing actual protection on the water. But I think it's it's important that we uh, really push that uh, the U.S. was very much a part of getting this international treaty um, nationally. We've worked, uh, we being a broad coalition, to make sure there's 10 billion of new ocean climate funding that's part of the 300 billion that's committed um, under the IRA, the the climate bill that passed recently, as well as infrastructure at the state level. um, California is leading in coastal and ocean climate adaptation. And uh, there's huge challenges there at the local level. We're finally going to have a a 400 acre park in my own low income community of Richmond, California, a coastal park that protects uh, Eel grasses, and I, I think you know when I was growing up, it was like think locally, think globally, act locally. Um, today, with the crisis we're facing, it's we got to act uh, locally, regionally, globally, simultaneously, and uh, and I think it all connects. Right. And Farah, in our final minute, what about the role of activists and the environmental community to ensure that this treaty is implemented? 
I mean, such an important role. I mean, even, you know, the, 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 the formal negotiations for this treaty only commenced in 2018. But before that, there was so much work done by activists and environmentalists to get this treaty on the agenda of, of governments and to get it as far as we have done today. So the same will be true uh, for the next steps uh, in terms of ratification and implementation. Activists, um, you know, they've come together from around the world, from all walks of, uh, of life, from, you know, the, the, the scientists, from civil society groups, but also indigenous communities, frontline communities. Um, and, and without the movement or without activism, it's going to be very difficult to see governments pick up that political will to actually translate this into, uh, into protection for the ocean. So, they say the yeah. ocean is rising, but so are we. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah. Farah Obeidullah is ocean advocate, founder of Women for Oceans, and editor of the new book, The Ocean and Us. Farah, thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to have you back to talk about your book. Thank you for having me. Thank you. David Helvarg is executive director of Blue Frontier, an ocean conservation and policy group, host and producer of the Rising Tide Ocean podcast, and the author of six books, including 50 Ways to Save the Ocean. David, thank you for your ongoing, really important work, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. And you can learn more about the UN High Seas Treaty at yourcallradio.org. We will definitely continue to follow this. Thanks to Malihe Razazan for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. Be sure to head over to yourcallradio.org. You can download our podcast there, listen to past shows. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Your Call Radio. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's Your Call. You can hear this morning's Your Call rebroadcast this evening at 7 p.m.